0: on the nature of love or <laughs> the nature of the heart. The fifth of the fifth, one, one. Wow, it sounds like a good numerical number, isn't it? Um, first and fifth row together, a combination. Will and mind, uh, which then opposes the heart. Now, when the, we're talking about the, the heart and the heart centre, which is specifically what the topic is, Most people think in terms of the energy of love, but not many really understand what it really is. Of course, um, most people can conceive of love in terms of emotional love, in terms of attraction to to an opposite partner and trying to give to them emotionally or lovingly, because um, they often get something um, in exchange. Relationships, sort of um, the um, elimination of the feeling of loneliness and all of those types of things. So it's a selfish love. Anything to do with the emotions is selfish it's always related to the I, the me, the mine. You know, it's self centered. But that is not love. Anything to do with um, the emotions in the solar plexus center, the, the desire principle, the principle to please creates karma, creates samskaras binds you to this earth, produces children, when you think about it in terms of the objective of emotional love. It therefore perpetuates the species over and over again. You're bound to the concept or to the process of reincarnation. And so this then perpetuates samsara And pain and suffering inevitably, whenever you're in a physical body, you do those actions that cause pain and suffering because you're not properly disattached to what you do and to the world around you. Because you're not attached, you suffer. You can see, therefore, the concept of being alive in a physical body technically is just a process of an unending period of suffering and relief of suffering through doing pleasurable acts and often pleasurable acts revolves around the concept of being loving to somebody and then they are loving to you but this is not really the energy of the heart it's the energy of the solar plexus it can be the energy of the heart going to the solar plexus, which will produce in you or in the individual goodwill, goodwill for your neighbor, goodwill for the environment around, do service work, to, to assist the planet in one way or the other, to assist other people. That's the energy of the heart coming to the solar plexus. And you do things again because there is a, emotional bias because it makes you feel good to do those things and so when there's a feeling response um, and a sensation of pleasure so to speak that is the solar plexus again most people live in this form of a emotional love and mistake it for true love which is really dispassionate it's cool it's clear reason It's got nothing to do with the emotions whatsoever. And that is the energy of the heart. Clear, cool reason. We'll give more definitions and more explanations of it a bit later. But that's the start, to think it out. So, whenever the emotions are involved, there's a self-focus and a pleasurable feeling. (laughs) It's not that the the heart doesn't produce a form of pleasure. What the heart produces, when you manifest things, cool, clear reason, is a joy, an exquisite joy. It's the energy of, of ecstasy, if, you, if I could use that type of word. But it's not emotional. It's a type of bliss. like Ecstasy was wrong. Bliss is probably the way that they translate it in, in the, the Tibetan, in the, the Buddhism. Bliss is the, the state of revelation that comes from the heart when you're manifesting it's expression. But then again, you can see all these terms have emotional or solar plexus connotations because virtually everyone that is describing these sensations or these feelings brings the energy of the heart to the SP in order to relate to people around them. Because virtually everyone focuses through the abdominal, abdominal brain, which is the solar plexus. It is the entire inter of social organization, social activity, the way people think. People think because nearly every thought has clouded with their emotions or comes through their emotions. That is this world around them. As a matter of fact, if you cut the emotions out of um, people's lives, they'd probably commit suicide. They wouldn't know how to live. Pleasant emotions, unpleasant emotions, violent emotions, loving emotions, angry emotions. You can see there's a whole pile of emotions and that is normal human society. It's only a few stalwart yogins and, and um, you're technically the mad yogi that works to, to consciously eliminate the emotions out of, out of life, out of consciousness so that the, the true revelations of what is come into being. And the higher domains, the domains of liberation, is not a scary of the emotions there. Not, not even a, a touch, because it's destructive. It's karma-creating. It touches a samsara. You can see, therefore, as you work the way of the heart, you evolve out of humanity altogether as you bring its consciousness into expression you eliminate karma the awakening of love therefore is the process that destroys your karma or cleanses your karma with physical plane activity that is what love really is that which eliminates or tends to eliminate your karmic connection with I'll use the term humanity with samsara. It's actually wrong to use the term with humanity. Of course, what I really meant was emotionally polarized humanity. Love and the emotions are contradictory terms. They're diametrically opposite. Though most people, nearly everyone, equates love with the emotions. But not the way it truly is. Now... That's the the fundamental understanding for all that are on the path, whether you're in our organization, anyone that's following the way of hierarchy, and certainly for Buddhists and Hindus when they're in their, their higher teachings there. Now, where does this elimination of samskaras, this death of karma, which is the true love, that which produces liberation from samsara, that which um, produces your ability to travel into cosmic space, into the vast domains of being non-being, and anything that leads you there is love. Anything that um, keeps you tied to the world of suffering and death is not love. It's the opposite. What keeps you tied to the world of um, suffering and death is also good emotions, loving emotions. It's technically still emotions. It's still the, the force of attraction, the force of desire, the force of wanting something. Attachment to things, attachment to the lover attachment to the concepts of the beloved, attachments to all those things that produce a good feeling in you, so you give good emotions. Of course, your good emotions or goodwill is a great improvement on the other forms of will, the elementary forms of will that have preceded it. Um, strong desire, you all know about that and you know, all know about the, the, the problems of your strong desire and passion, especially sexual passions, and all the things that it produces, all the pain and suffering that comes as a consequence of it, because nothing lasts. So that's the most elementary form of will. The concept of will here is that which comes from the concept of an I or me. It stems from a central ego Uh, central id, a a central actor in the world stage that thinks that it is real, that it somehow is manifesting a phenomenal destiny. Of course it is in in that sort of way from the point of view of samsara, but in reality it's not real. It's a, a transitory figment of mind that is going through a particular, what we call life process. The fetus has developed and has come out of the womb and it starts to identify with the phenomena around and its identification of the phenomena around by means of mind creates a figment of the imagination called the I to me, a personality, and it's given a name. And all of you know those names from this with respect to what you call yourself. But it's transitory. It's changing all the time. From what it was when it came out of the womb to what it is when it was 10 years old and what it is now or what it is that is looking in the mirror whenever you look at it. It's changing. When you go away and look in the mirror five minutes later, it has changed. Something has actually gone in the mind structure and, and another five years later looks in the mirror and wrinkles have come and so forth. It's changing, adapting, moving all the time and then it dies. And that id, that ego, that personality, that thing no longer exists. Yes, it's transformed into an astral um, (laughs) form and it's preparing to reincarnate again into a new body, a new shape, a new idea, a new identity, which can be nothing like what it was before. The Saksara has continued, but it's a different identity, maybe female when last time it was male and so forth you can see that this concept of will, which is self-will, after the desire mind, we evolved to self-will and you do everything for the self, everything for the I, everything for the my, me, and this is the way the world, the whole, is governed and is determined. Whole nations develop self-will or desire mind. they rapaciously take from other nations, in order to build the national image or the national good or whatever they call it. For you have rapacious wars and and world hegemony, such as we have with the United States and those that uh, support its its, um, domination over the third world, its malicious self-aggrandisement of everything that the whole world has for itself. This is also another form of a personality, national ego, national idem, national I, me, mine, uh, attacking everything else for uh, its own power base. And that is basically where the whole world is at, the great majority. And of course, some have evolved from that state to the the level of goodwill, where they actually see that um, just to be selfish and self-centered and, you know, maliciously sort of taking from others is not going to produce real happiness because people react and so forth. I mean, it's loving and um, being happy. And this anyway, this goodwill, most of you understand, as I said, which is what many equate with love in its various forms. But on the path to enlightenment, we are moving from goodwill to the will to love. When we are moving from goodwill to the will to love, we see the transitory nature of everything. The reason that one must start to be non-attached to samsara, non-attached to the phenomenal around. And to do good works, essentially. Because one understands the law of karma. You do good works, you get good karma, you have a pleasant life, next life. And if you do bad works, well, you're going to suffer. Everything you do, in thought, word or deed, you must pay for in the way that you generated it. According to the suffering scale that you caused to other people, that's the way karma goes. Or according to the a joy stage you gave to other people and people may measure this in terms of the amount of personal wealth they have or or relationships that they can go through that, that are pleasant and so forth now this generation of the will to love however in its more refined form really necessitates the elimination of the development of some scaras that keep people attached to phenomenality, to keep keep people illusion-bound to the concept of the I and everything that it does to perpetuate the image of self. So this elimination of samskaras means the cleansing of karma. You're no longer interested in producing more acts of painful endeavor that produce inevitable pain-suffering, pain-suffering, and then, of course, a bit of happiness in between, which is going to be your next life. You're interested in saying, well, must be the ending to all of that, and the ending to all of that for all of humanity. So you work both ways for, for the elimination of your own concept of ego and the elimination of the causes and pain and suffering in humanity itself which um, leads, or it's associated, therefore, to their attachments to things that are ephemeral and transient, including, you know, the types of relationships that people think is is, um, loving. Inevitably, that also must go. So, the elimination of things that cause pain and suffering for everyone necessitates the elimination of the concept of ego self-abasement if you want you manifest a type of Jesus or Christ figure on the world stage you do everything for the welfare of all those around you you will sacrifice your whole life for that purpose you sacrifice anything to do what you think is you for the other but where does this type of energy come from? The Buddhists label it with the concept of bodhichitta. Body is um, well compassion, I suppose, or the compassion that liberates. And chitta is the mind, uh, which is the vehicle of that compassion. Often I translate it just simply as compassionate mind, but it really is the mind that liberates. Now, in our philosophy, or most of you know, we are, we are a, a threefold entity. There's the monad or spirit, there's a soul that, that causes our reincarnations, and there's a personality. Now, the personality is the eye, the actor on the stage, and it creates its karma and its evolving consciousness. Now, what it's really doing is developing wisdom and love. Those two things, that's what it must do. That's its whole purpose for existence. Wisdom and love. The love that liberates and the wisdom that knows how to... knows the phenomena, nature of the phenomenality of the world and universe around and how to explain the reality of that phenomenality to all self-conscious entities. Now... This threefold entity, therefore, we've just talked about the personality. All of you know the personality well, you live through it, you experience its changes, its mood, movements, its um, emotionality, its aggressiveness, its mind, um, its self-identifications with whatever it wants to identify with, and its um, illusional World image of itself that is created, in conscious distinction to everyone else's world image of themselves. Then those world images of themselves battle with each other's world image of each other, and therefore we have the whole pot period of karma that's created that sustains humanity on this pain of suffering, this world of suffering that um, we call the earth, and it's heaven and hells. Now, the soul itself, very few understand or have contacted or know about, but there we have the sources or reincarnations. It's not at all conscious, if you want, of your emotions. Well, it knows of the existence of emotions, but it doesn't live in an emotional world. It lives on the higher domain of the mind, on the abstract realms of the mind. It's group conscious. And there's no ego. Though DK uses the term ego, capital E-G-O, to describe it, because it is a, a separated unit of consciousness. But at the same time, it is group conscious. And male, female, and all of those types of experiences or identifications it does not have. And it's pure mind. Mind. Residing in the sea of mind, and there we have this quality of mind that is disattached to phenomenality, disattached to form. It looks at the karma, and sees the whole stream of karma, what I call a consciousness stream, which is the way I, Jenny, divide, um define the human unit—a stream of different uh, of consciousness where. Aspects of that consciousness are brought together into a package, a quantum, so to speak, during every new birth, which we call a personality. But that personality, when you actually try to analyze what your mind is, it's just a continuum of thoughts, a continuum of emotions, wrapped up with thoughts, the design <coughs> mind. Sometimes in, in Buddhism it's called the defiled mind is the way that manas is, um, manas is, is defined. <laughs> So it's a defiled mind, that's what you are, within your consciousness stream that evolves from life to life. And these lives, these quantums of, 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 of unities of i are projected into time and space by means of the soul, which sees the entire stream and selects out of that units of samskara that uh, must be bound together over a sequence of time via a personality structure to produce a particular purpose for that life. And it moves on. But what's in the mind of the soul itself It's its own liberation. Its own death. And it works to produce that. Its own death is divine love and it's love itself that happens in the fourth initiation and it's of the initiation process it produces a christ on the cross and if any of you have actually sort of really meditated a little bit um for longer than a few seconds on the significance of the christ on the cross and what that entity did to get there consciously and willingly And that's the whole point of the story. Uh, It's really, you know, all night in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but thine be done nevertheless. And he sweated drops of blood while he was busy saying this prayer over and over again, asking his disciples to stay awake with him. Of course, they couldn't, because that's the way most disciples are. They are asleep, their bodies. They're walking around doing their things, but their mind is asleep. It's not awake to reality not the way Jesus was. And he knew what was coming ahead of him, and he went there willingly. And that's the way the soul is, that's the way the divine individual is. They willingly go to their own depths of their physical self, of their eye concept. And of course, as you all know, going to this death takes a long time a whole lifetime of overcoming attachments to form, overcoming attachments to samsara, overcoming attachments to whatever causes pleasure and pain for the enlightened being. They are both the same. They course, it's much better to have a pleasurable life than a painful life, but the pain is what teaches you something. It actually teaches you what not to do. If you live in a life of internal pleasure, internal indulgence, which of course a lot of people out there really want to do, because that's all they seek for what are you going to learn? you're not going to evolve much if you're infatuated with the same pleasure over and over and over again, of course that's the mainstream of most people's lives that's what they want, but you're not evolving, the pain is what teaches you, the pleasure does not The pleasure is what sustains you and attaches you to samsara. The pain is what makes you want to get out of samsara, become an enlightened being. So you can see the balance of these two forces, and in between is a disattached state that is looking for neither pain nor pleasure, but something in between. The middle way of the Buddha, majamika, So the soul is attached and looks after the personality via what DK calls the consciousness thread. And it's attached to the head lotus and it feeds the entire thousand petal lotus of the head and thereby through the central cord all the other chakras. It awakens consciousness the consciousness of the eye, the me, and the mind and all those samskaras that people think is them, with the real around them. It's all a visual, sensual hallucination. It's interesting to think that you're just walking out <laughs> a field of, you know, it's like a drug trip and if you've taken drugs and you, you can say, well, which is the real what you're experiencing in in that particular, say, um, psilocybin sort of experience, or whether um, when you come out of it and you're beginning to sort of um, feel the sensations of the physical plane again, uh, which is the real, the drug trip can be just more real than this physical plane. Certainly while you're experiencing it, it is real. And then when you come out of it, there's another drug trip to get into, which people call normal. Alive. And when you leave your body, is another not a drug trip? The only thing that's not the drug trip is this energy of love. That is the real and the only thing that is real. But it means death to whatever you think is real. That is love. The death of everything around you, that is samsara and the hallucinatory activities of your brain consciousness, identifying with transitory things and making it real, making it something worth having, then it's all going to be consumed. You can't hang on to any of it, not one bit of it. You've all tried pleasure experiences again and again and again. Um, You're seeing your things that you wanted to hang on to be lost, be destroyed, be taken away from you. The government's very good at taking your resources as well. Um, Famines come, pestilence, wars. And, of course, inevitably you die. And then it's all immaterial. You look at that thing that was once your body, almost with disgust. That thing that eventually is going to be burnt or starts to rot away, you know, or put in the ground, put a worm to It's It's just disgusting thing to be in but yes that's what everyone thinks is the reality but that attachment to that is not love or anything that causes it now going back to the soul therefore it's impersonal and it is the sum total of the samskaras of the consciousness stream and it works out the destiny so that eventually it can die Yeah, the um, the death of the soul is likened to a supernova on its own domain a explosion of consciousness and bliss a mixture of the two uh, bliss what a wonderful word now above that is the monad what is the monad we can call it spirit I I have to use the term Kaya in, in Buddhism because I have no concept really of monad or soul. They, they've um, gone away from that. But it's the, the Kaya expression. And dharma is simply truth. It's, it's the universal law. The truth of the universal law and kaya is the vehicle of it. That's what it really means. The monad is the true human Entity. It's a cosmic entity. It's journeyed through the stars. (laughs) It has its own births and deaths, but these are for long cycles of evolution, as we call it. So it's now incarnate on our Earth sphere, and it's incarnate on other planetary spheres before that, and it'll journey to the stars later after this brief sojourn on this earth has finished <coughs> all I look at when we're looking at the monad is what I call the monadic eye it's the three tears or three rings of energy that are looking down into samsara and keeping it all sustained for its purpose I won't go into its purpose but the energy that is directed into samsara from its eye, is what um, DK calls the life thread, and it anchors in the heart. And so when the child is born, in other words, when the child comes to life, there we have the heart center awakened. Of course, for the heart, it actually is awakened in the womb or, you know, it starts beating there. But for consciousness, that awakens the moment of first breath. In other words, when the baby takes its gulp of air and it cries, then the chakras spin and the soul itself incarnates, not before. Before that, it's a entity composed of a monadic link uh, and lots of divas building the form rapidly. That's important for those of you that, that begin to think in terms of when you are incarnated. Astrology uses this moment of first breath as the time of natal chart computation because that is when karma is activated. Until then, no karma. Not for that soul. Now, this life thread that is anchored in the heart, we um, give it the name in Buddhism, Shunyata, or Void. So, the heart center is the center which Where the void is found, where Shunyata is experienced, it's the middle of the centers. You've got the head ajna and throat center, then the heart, and then you've got the three lower centers below it. That's the middle of all extremes, and that's what Shunyata is. But what is the void? The void is that which is not mind, that which is deaf to mind. The void is a touch of cosmic consciousness, if you wish. And I don't want to use this term consciousness because it's not. I, when I do my writings, have to avoid it when I'm talking about cosmic things or monadic things or Dharma Kaya. I have to use awareness. It's very difficult to find terms for this state of experience, of identification. Consciousness is not it. So, Shunyata. There we have it. A jewel in the heart of the lotus that is antithetical to samsara. It has to be contained within samsara somehow by a sphere of love, pure radiant love energy love and its conversion into mind is what I call the shunyata samsara nexus and the whole philosophy of well, whole tantric philosophy of the vayadhyani buddhas and what they are and what they are not come from this interrelationship takes ages to explain it all. However, the important thing for all of you is that that which is at the very heart of the heart or the very energy field of the heart, which is but an expression or the monad's expression in form, it's devoid. It's void of anything that you can understand with consciousness. It's not void of energy um, or other things, it's just void of consciousness, void of your identification with samsara. Therefore, when you're working the way of the heart, when you develop the will to love, to overcome samskaras, what you're really doing is you're working to the heart to transform samskaras into what is also called in Sanskrit Amrita, the nectar of the gods the nectar of immortality the philosopher's stone cosmic consciousness maybe we can use that term as I said I hate the word consciousness though (laughs) cosmic awareness probably better cosmic identification now we're getting somewhere there is where the heart is that's what the void is. It is not this transitory world of the senses around us and what is experienced by means of the senses. It has its purpose though, all these experiences, because wisdom is needed to develop. And that's what the monad is that's working, what I mean. is working um, for, for um, to experience or express in this, its present earth incarnation. The energy from the heart, working through the chakras, through the central, the sushumna nadi, works via the seven chakras to produce the uh, the transformatory effects of consciousness and then the transmogrification of the experiences obtained through consciousness Into enlightenment attributes which are liberated from samsara. It produces an ending to whatever you conceive of reality. And of course, it produces the real, the real that you are. It produces no more need to reincarnate because it's been done, it's finished. So that is what love is. The ending of the cycle of incarnation and the transformation of experiences into wisdom attributes that are cosmic in scope. When the entity of the monad in the heart interrelates with the energy or the pranas received from the newborn child, which it can be thought of in terms of breath and in terms of food that you intake and in terms of the food of the mind consciousness, these three types of energies, then that is called jiva or life at force. And that is what circulates in your nadis in terms of the five expressions or the five different types of prana that the correspondences of your five sense consciousnesses which makes your mind which the Buddhists called the sixth sense. So all of those experiences and the sum total of those experiences through many past lives of such experiences have to be converted into the transcendental correspondence or the cosmic correspondences by means of Jiva as it goes to the heart and it produces death of the concept of the I, the me, the mind, whatever it is that you identify with as the conscious personality on this physical plane. Third, so, that is love. As you work on the path to produce that love, you go through transformatory, transformatory and then transmogrifications of your samskaras. You're transforming your gross samskaras into subtler ones. So that they become more and more loving because to get to the will of love, you must go through the medial stage of goodwill. From goodwill to the, you realise that you must eventually work upon yourself to achieve liberation from self, and therefore you use the will to do that. The stages of um, of doing that are given in our text in the text of yoga and meditation. Therefore, involve all of those forms of renunciation that is given there. You understand those renunciations because you're going through them. But of course, your personal self is battling every inch of the way to not renounce its attachments to whatever it regards as pleasurable, to whatever the emotions tell it the emotions desire for and the building of some sort of emotional empire. So love battles the emotions. Love battles the attachments to form. Love produces death of what you regard as yourself. And so you end up in a deathless state, a state of universals, a state of identification with the all, with the everything, and not just with a point-in-time space that is continuously changing. So, there we have the process. When you've obtained that state, then you realise, because of the dynamics of the way everything is interrelated, that not possible to enter cosmos proper until all sentient beings are relieved from, uh, from suffering. So the energy of bodhicitta uh, which is stored in the heart then works out to relieve the suffering relieve the attachments of beings to samsara and this is called the bodhisattva path and there are ten stages to this. And all of you are bodhisattvas at different levels of the stage of A. relieving yourselves from the necessity of experiencing suffering and attachments to things and B. relieving the rest of the world. Everything evolves according to group. Group consciousness is the means. And therefore, the bodhisattva works within group context to produce liberation of the entire members of the group, of which it is a soul attached to or identified with, and they together move onwards into cosmos. They build a, what is euphemistically called a spaceship, and then they can travel the cosmos together. That is another way of thinking of the consciousness of the heart, it is identified with all our hearts. It's group conscious. That is what love is. It knows not itself. It knows not self. It knows all selves as one self, as one. I use the term again, unified bliss of consciousness. <coughs> um, this term consciousness here is a transformed form of mind, abstract mind. And this bliss of consciousness. That unifies all into one. There we have love. But it's liberative because there's no identification with an eye. And it moves on. So there is identity. Identity is never, ever, ever removed in conscious in our cosmos. Every star is unique. Every galaxy is unique. Every moon is unique. Everything has its own form of identity, but it's not attached to samsara. It's got its own energy field, uh, ray disposition, purpose, and part of a integral whole, not separate. When you talking about love therefore you can see that when you're trying to explain it to others, then you, you can say well at the end you produce a death <laughs> lovely isn't it Will they understand that no this is the basis of of your understandings and to eliminate mental emotions to eliminate these will these aspects of mind that's are destructive to the personality that builds samskaras. Now, this is what love, the energy of love, opposes. It opposes the will of mind, the loving mind, the critical mind, pride of mind, concrete mind, your desire mind, and wrongly faceted mind. You can see on this particular path that there are entities that willfully resist this process of dying to an eye, a so a concept that intensely hang on to these aspects of mind, their animal like correspondence. When they do this with a cult methodology utilising psychic power, they are a dark brother. They're both in form, such as we are, and out of body, such as we can become, and such as some of the masters are, and so forth. They, using their own psychology, their own methodology, the laws of mind, as it evolves to attachment to samsara, that oppose the energy of love that oppose the concept of liberation, then see it as the most destructive energy that will destroy the very purpose of their existence. And that is what all beings on the path to liberation must fight. If you do not fight the members of the Dark Butterhood through the generation of the energy of, of the various rays of light which is comes from the monad, then you cannot awaken the powers of the heart. Therefore, the concept of the Bodhisattva path necessitates this ability to transform the substance around you that is Samskaric, that that is, um, ties you to to karma and ties all others to karma. And those um, units, those ruthless units that are lords of Pangea Karma will oppose that with all of their might. And therefore you have the ancient, most ancient war between the lords of dark face and the lords of shining countenance that you are engaged with now. It will not stop until samsara is finished. That is what all of history is really about. All of the religions revolve around this. Though, of course, misreligion is supposedly ignorant of this fact. And, of course, historians and modern scientists deny the existence of these forces. But there they are. It is Um, pure philosophy, pure philosophical deduction, to see that such entities exist and they must be fought. Your own samskaras, uh, externalizations of these entities, and when you're looking at humanity as the whole, and there's great group Generated some scars, national fears, national identifications, national desire, national opacity. Uh, we can go on and on with all of these um, national entities. That there are great cosmic dark forces working through and with to sustain. That you can see that the battles of a body suffer to free themselves because they are part of a group. From all that necessitates sometimes fighting some very powerful psychic entities indeed. This is the bodhisattva path. This is the way of love. This is the only way of liberation. Nothing else will bring you to the monad but through the transmogrification of all the forces of darkness, of substance, of ignorance that binds you to samsara and the attachments to those things. That's pure logic. Okay, that's, I suppose, in a nutshell, and some of you can give much detail on any aspect of what I've given you to others when you frame the words to do so. My books have the teachings and, of course, D.K.'s books. You can see anyway from this why it's important for all of you to have some understanding of Buddhism. The Buddhist, the rectified Buddhism that I teach and, and that I'm writing about in my books is the basis, the true philosophy of philosophy, the basis to the understanding of what you are and why you exist and where you're going to. Therefore, it's quite important to read the text. If you don't read the texts, you're not going to get very far on this path. It means overcoming ignorance. Ignorance in Buddhism is the the, the rootable evil. And there you have it. overcome your ignorance, learn something as fast as you possibly can, and the quickest way is to read my books, so specifically the cellular consciousness that is being written, but the others as well, because they transform the substance of your mind and they overcome the dull patches of darkness that we call ignorance, give you all the keys to the awakening of the potency of the heart so that you can become nomadic in the end of it all. That's its purpose. Uh, And that's uh, just part of the process. Without working upon your mind, you're not going to get anywhere.